Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. This is Investpodden with Ronny and Ted live from Epicenter in Stockholm, Sweden. Today we are honored to have Eric Ries with us. An applause, please. <laughs> Eric, we are super excited to chat with you. Uh, You've written a bunch of books. How many are there now? Well, I guess it's three, depending on how you count. <laughs> oh yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was way more now because I feel like I've been reading and reading. There's like and millions and millions of each copy. Now. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true. And there's been an awful lot of derivative books uh, built with the word "lean" in the title, uh, based on the success of lean startups. So yeah, there are quite a few, uh, quite a few spinoffs. Cool. Um, so about six or seven years ago, or something, you mm-hmm. defined what a startup is. Can you please just tell us the definition? So we all agree here what a startup is. Sure. So uh, has been part of my work for for a long time was if we're going to make the practice of entrepreneurship more rigorous, we should define our terms and know what it is. Makes sense. Uh, the definition that always made sense to me was uh, three parts. A human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. So it doesn't actually say, you know, two guys in a garage or whatever the like version of it you see in the movies. It doesn't matter whether you eat ramen noodles or not. It doesn't even really matter what industry you're in or sector. It's just about uh, are you trying to manage when you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And for some reason, in in normal walks of life, if you walked around on the street claiming that you could predict the future, you know, you'd be committed. <laughs> you'd be considered to have some kind of mental defect that you you think you can predict the future. But in business, we've built up this culture that says, oh, if you if you you know you can pretend to have like a astrological projections about the future, that's that's considered meritorious. So uh, that's worked okay for kind of standard business. But as we move into the entrepreneurial domain, it's it's a bit of a mess. That's uh, that's really interesting because we as investors we see all these startups coming in and they have like this hockey stick <laughs> prediction of the Always future. The hockey stick. And and it's not only the startups; everyone has that. Any comments on that? I mean, can we see the future, or is your method a way of seeing the future? Well, so it's it's a very careful balance. Uh, there's a reason why we want startups to build business plans and then make projections. You want uh, when I was an entrepreneur. And I would make a business plan to raise money. I didn't really understand why, to be honest. I thought it was like a, a kind of a kabuki ritual that you did in order to demonstrate to investors how much pain you could endure because you were willing to waste a lot of your life in Excel making this ridiculous spreadsheet at 11 o'clock the night before, 
the meeting that, at nine early. o'clock that's in the morning, early. right? <laughs> Obviously, because you know you're like, oh, I have to have a projection in order to raise the money in order to have the meeting. So I'll just make something up and then take it to the meeting and see if it's any good. And it took me a long time to understand that some investors, the less savvy ones, uh, would then use those spreadsheets as a tool of accountability. I remember the first mm-hmm. time I was in a startup when uh, we were giving an update, you know, hey, guess what? As usual, we have almost no customers and almost no revenue. We're on the flat part of the hockey stick, so we're on time, <laughs> on budget, you know, on, tra- <laughs> on track, hockey stick to come in store. And I remember what investor once said, well, it says here, shut here on page 27 of the plan in Appendix B, you know, spreadsheet cell X that you would have, you know, and they read to me this money, this many customers you're supposed to have by this date. And I was like, where did you get that number? He's like, I'm reading it from the plan that you gave me, and I was like, <laughs> I don't. Which plan? I was like, yeah, which plan? Well, well, I don't. I don't remember that. <laughs> I certainly haven't looked at it since the day I made it up for you. But also, you understand, we just, we just made those numbers up, right? That the night before we met you, I, I just thought all investors understood that. I, I was shocked to learn that some had taken with them into their entrepreneurial investing. Uh, ideas from more general management where we can, in fact, make pretty accurate forecasts and so it makes sense to use forecasts as a tool of accountability. When we're doing something fundamentally new, we have no idea. So the hockey stick is problematic if people treat it like a projection or a prediction about the future. It's fine as an analytical exercise you know, to, to, to like mm. help you think through how customers lead to some kind of profitable outcome. It's like the, the inputs to the spreadsheet aren't the problem. The problem is if we treat it like a prediction about the future, that's when we get into trouble. And that's why I think a more scientific approach to doing entrepreneurship is better because we can just be honest about the fact that we don't have predictions, we have hypotheses. We believe that if we build this product and it works like this at this price point for this customer, then customers will buy it and tell their friends and all this good stuff will happen and then we'll be on the cover of magazines and make all this money and live happily ever after. So that's like a chain of deductive reasoning. Mm. If one link in the chain is wrong, like, yes, uh, it's a great product technically, but customers won't buy the damn thing, then it kind of doesn't matter every other, the subsequent links in the chain really don't matter because if you take that one term in the spreadsheet and change it to a zero, right? Zero revenue per customer means, you know, zero percent conversion rate means all the other numbers also magically turn to zero. It's like, can you visualize that spreadsheet as the zeros like cascade out from ground zero of the nuclear blast of just destroying (laughs) your whole business? I've actually lived through that. It's really painful. And... So we call those in lean startup terms, we call them leap of faith assumptions. What are the things that have to be true about the world in order for the business to make sense? And by being explicit about them, instead of hiding them in Appendix B, cell 25, you know, footnote three, like by being explicit about them, that gives us an opportunity then to run more better defined experiments to learn quickly and inexpensively which are true and which are not. And then our most famous piece of jargon in the lean startup movement that we've contributed to the world, uh, if if something's not right, if one of our leap of faith assumptions is wrong, don't crater the company and give up, but rather pivot. Rather pivot. Right? Change the strategy without giving up on the vision. Mm-hmm. So, so an interesting thing of what we're saying there is the distinction between uncertainty and what I would put on the other side, risk. As an investor, That's right. I usually look at things as being uncertain, basically scenario, hypothesis is right or wrong. Thanks very much for reading your book and trying to get to your methodology. Or risk. But now we're talking about a new scenario working with large companies where they're only dealing with risk and think they know about the future. Of course. Because they have a history. So 
how could someone like you come into big companies like GE and others? Yeah. And what kind of self-confidence must you have <laughs> in going in there and saying that you, know, you could do this better, guys? Could you tell us a little bit about what happened and then why did you do that? It certainly wasn't my idea. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could say I had some kind of genius foresight about this, but here's what happened. Here's literally what happened. I published a Lean Startup in 2011. And I published that definition I told you about a second ago. And almost from the first day, I mean, literally, I remember being at the launch party in New York City to celebrate the publication of the book in 2011. And like from that first day, people who were in big companies would come up to me after like I give a little talk about what the book was about. They said, that was a great talk. Uh, I want you to know I accept your challenge. (laughs) I accept your challenge? And I would say, what challenge? (laughs) What are you talking about? And they'd be like, well, I'm a general manager and division of a big company. And you said in your book that these ideas can apply even to my situation. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, but that was like a deductive consequence of the theory. I just wrote it in the book, you know? Like, I, that's not my department, Wait, really. Wait, so this is just what you do? You just write shit and then <laughs> yeah. people take it seriously? Well, and like, then now you're here? Yeah, I mean, like, I, mean I, I don't like... What do people think business authors do? Like that's why I, I can't stand people like the business guru thing because like first of all I'm on the Peter Drucker school. He said people call me a guru because they can't spell charlatan. Okay, because like what do we think people think business authors have some kind of mystical insight into whatever the astral plane of whatever? Like no, it's like I have an idea. Seems like it works. You know, worked for me. Here's some reasoning about from first principles why it might make sense at this time. You know, like it, it's it's deduction. It's philosophy. It's 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 writing, you know. It's, so that's you're all a it philosopher. is. Philosopher. I don't. I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I take the, I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is. But so you know, I was explaining this. I think this would work. So so I was. You know, they would say, well, so I would like to to apply these ideas in my company, my big company, and I would say, best of luck. <laughs> <You're> terrific. <laughs> I hope you do. You know, they're like, no, no, you don't understand. I would like you to help me. <laughs> Uh, uh, implement it, and, and I would be like, I don't think you understand. It's almost like you're in the wrong department in the store. Uh, you're on floor four. This is startups floor. <laughs> you need to be uh, floor six on politics and bureaucracy floor. You know, like, that's not my thing. I don't, you know. But so I'm actually very fortunate that some much more visionary managers than I kind of dragged me kicking and screaming to say, no, no, I really think you would find it interesting to look at this. And so you know, I would I would go and and we would talk about the principles of lean startup. And it was funny. So, so I tell the story in the book of an early uh, industrial company that, that asked me to come in and, and do a project. And I just picture the scene, okay? They take me out to corporate headquarters, and we're doing a workshop about Lean Startup. It's me. They've summoned three people from an existing team that makes this industrial equipment to participate in the workshop with me. And then they have 25 corporate vice presidents in the back of the room. 25? Yeah, just, just to observe the workshop. So these poor guys who've been summoned to headquarters to have this workshop with this idiot from California who doesn't know anything <laughs> about anything, who has to talk to them about Lean Startup. So, so we, and I said, well, let's, because I don't know anything. I was very honest about, look, I don't know what you do. I don't really understand industrial manufacturing. That's not my thing. So let's start with, you could present to all of us, what is the currently approved business plan for this product? This company was going to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to build this incredible product. It was going to take five years of, you know, intensive R and D before they could bring it to market. And so they started to uh, project 
with slides, here's the currently approved plan. You know, here's all the use cases. It's used for five different things, and here's the you know here's how much it's going to cost, and here are all the technical things we have to get right for it to work, and the efficiency, and the this that. And I'm like, you know. Trying to understand what this thing is, and I'm like, is it bigger than a bread box? <laughs> Smaller than a bread box? What you know? What is? I'm like really trying to get my mind on what is it. And finally, they put, they put a, a slide up on the wall that I'll never forget. They have revenue forecast by year for this product for the next 25 years. <laughs> it's a bar chart. It has a very distinctive shape, which we've already discussed. But first, the first five bars on the chart. Are blank. Ooh. Because obviously during the five years of stealth R&D, we won't have any customers involved, God forbid. <laughs> uh, certainly we won't be making any revenue during that time. And then after the five years, the next 20 years, we'll have the beautiful hockey stick shape curve. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't really know anything about industrial manufacturing, but I... I know this graph very well, my friends. Like, step into my office. Uh, did I mention I'm from Silicon Valley? Like, leading home, our uh, leading export uh, into the world is the hockey stick shaped graph. We'd be happy to talk to you about this. And and we just had a conversation about: Do we really believe this forecast? And you know, at, on the one hand, everyone wanted to pretend like we did because that's mm-hmm. the basis of our big investment. But when you really press on, like, no, really, do you really know how much revenue you're going to make from this product in 2023? Exactly. You know, like, it's, it's actually kind of a ridiculous question. So we were able to have a conversation about what are the leap of faith assumptions? Well, how is this product distributed? What, what kind of support does it need? Who's the customer? How much do they going to, you know, like, how, what's the business model? How's it going to work? And over the course of a couple of hours, this team was able to reconceive their whole project um, using a concept in these terms we call minimum viable product or MVP. Instead of saying, let's build the perfect product for five years and launch it worldwide and make a billion dollars five years from now, if there's a fatal problem with the plan, wouldn't you like to know a little sooner than five years from now? And wouldn't you like to have spent slightly less than $300 million to find it out? Uh, so we kept talking about how could we get something out in four years, in three years, in two years. And eventually, the engineers themselves came up with a way that we could launch a minimum viable product in six months. Wow. So a complete, a, literally an order of magnitude, a 10x reduction in cycle time from 60 months down to six months. So we could take it to a first customer. And luckily, one of the big, fancy corporate VPs in the room had a customer we could take it to. And wouldn't you know, when we took that product to that first customer, they said, you call this a product? Yeah. <laughs> right. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I wouldn't buy this from you. You know, you couldn't give it to me for free. And and we're like, well, didn't you read this great business plan? <laughs> it says in the business plan that you're supposed to love this. And they're like, you know, you're, you're in cell B twenty seven. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you have like the spreadsheet that I made up the night before I got the funding says. And so like everything about that story. Um, on the surface, would say it has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. Big company, multinational, industrial equipment. You know, there's nothing startup about. It. There's no ramen noodles. There's no Mark Zuckerberg. There's no software. There's no app. You know, you don't buy this thing on Amazon, right? Like this is a very different environment. Yet that, like, the essence of that story is the same as I've been talking about for a long time. And I've, you know, and I've lived it. You know, you make those mm-hmm. mistakes. You fall in love with your own product concept. You convince yourself that everyone's going to want it, and you don't bother to check, or at least just to double check, step outside of the reality distortion field for a minute, and be like, "Hey, are we building the right product? Is this actually what people want? Like, do we have the so like?" That same basic entrepreneurial challenge, uh, this team faced it, uh, you know, as much as anybody else. So I, I came around to the idea that 
uh, that entrepreneurs are everywhere. But I'm surprised because when I went to school, I was taught, ask people if they want this and if they want this, create it. Yeah. But this is news? Yeah, you would think, right? It's, it's like We shouldn't still be having to have this conversation. Totally. So why are we? It's 2018. Don't, people don't know this? Well, so here's the funny thing about it. Uh, in the early days of Lean Startup, we used to focus a lot on telling people that they should talk to their customers. Steve Blanket called it, get out of the building, go make sure that you're building a product customers want. But the problem is uh, everybody thinks they're doing that. So if you, I, I mean, I meet entrepreneurs all the time. We've got a room full of entrepreneurs here. You know, I, I've, I've probably talked to thousands. I don't know if we're up to tens of thousands of entrepreneurs in the last 10 years. And you ask an entrepreneur, are, do you know that customers are going to want this product? Every entrepreneur says yes. Have you talked to customers about it? Oh, oh, I have. And what have they said? Love it. Now, of course, like sometimes they really did it, but sometimes like they talked to their mom's, you know, <laughs> their mom's brothers, dogs, cousins, hairdresser, or whatever, or and they, just or whatever. The mom. Yeah, or just like just mom. Just I love mom. it, honey. Yeah, Please do it. Yes. <laughs> but actually, even if, even if you're talking to a true third party, like we, we we're we're so want to believe, we're so optimistic. So like asking someone if they would like, if they think your product is a good idea, is like asking someone if your baby is attractive. You know, I, it's my, I have a good-looking baby here. Like, who's going to be like, no, your baby is ugly? <laughs> like, just interpersonally, like, it's, it's inconceivable. So, no, of course not. So it's so easy to delude yourself. So that what's new here, I think, is not just that we're going to ask people what they think, but we're going to run an experiment. We're going to conceive of the interaction uh, in empirical data-oriented terms. So, like, what's important about that first customer interaction is not, "Hey, buddy, like, do you think this is a good idea?" But rather, uh, here's a specific offer to buy or pre-order a product. Uh, will you buy it? Will you use it? Would you be willing to deploy it? And then, when they say, when they inevitably say no, we don't give up, but rather we pivot to a new concept and we we. Over the course of time, we do this iterative process we call build, measure, learn. We take ideas and validate if they're good or not, hopefully incrementally over time as we get smarter, as we learn more about what customers really want, not just what they say they want, then from that we can build the more perfect product. But what you say is keep the vision and pivot and you'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we know if we should change the vision? So I think that I mean, I'm from San Francisco, so sometimes I can sound a little woo-woo. But honestly, I really think entrepreneurship is in part a journey of self-discovery. The the vision, like formally speaking, the vision is the aspect of the plan that you view as immutable, right? Like the values, the reason that you got into the business in the first place, the things you'd rather go out of business than compromise. But most of us don't actually really know what those things are at the beginning, and I don't think you can figure it out through formal analysis. Because what happens is you have this great idea, like, I know, I'm going to build you know, a, a personal teleportation device so people don't have to, to commute or walk around anymore, because boy, is that annoying. And everybody's going to want it. So like in your mind's eye, when you first conceived the idea, Literally everybody wants it. It costs nothing. It's you know you don't have to make any trade-offs. There are no compromises. The product works perfectly. The press adores it. it distributing is easy. Your competitors you know, commit suicide upon hearing about it. You have no problems when you conceive the vision. And it's only by putting things into reality that you discover like oh shoot, uh, I have to make a choice. 
you know, I can make a really high quality version of this product, but only for a luxury segment, or I can try to make a really low quality product, but for a mass market, but it doesn't doesn't perform. Like the reality then forces you to make these decisions, and over time you start to clarify which aspects of your plan are truly that immutable vision that you feel passionately about, and which are the kind of strategy elements you might be willing to compromise on in uh, in the course of a pivot. The only real failure modes are you. You don't care about anything. You'll compromise anything, and that's you can't you can't do science if you don't have a hypothesis. So you can't do that. You gotta you gotta discover that core. Or there's some people that just won't make a trade off and just they insist every aspect of the vision or nothing. And those businesses tend to go go right out of business. But the things I know that we both love that you're saying. Please ask your customers, will they buy this? <laughs> but then I wonder, did someone walk out and say, hey, you guys? So I have this thing called a fidget spinner. Yeah, I'm going to invent that. Right. People probably say, what the fuck? Yeah. What, what would they need that for? That guy is pretty rich now. Yeah. So maybe sometimes we shouldn't listen. I don't know if it's a guy. I, have no idea. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I don't even know who invented it. I mean, I yeah. usually say in the. I'm still not really clear on what it is, but I, exactly, that's right? For maybe for a different day. We no, can but I brought up Angry Birds plenty of times. So yeah. If someone were to pitch Angry Birds, maybe like, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Well, that's the difference uh, they between did well. being an investor <laughs> and a customer. See, like investors are forced to reason about what people may or may not do. Mm. But when you run an experiment with a customer, all they have to do is like, it's just play deal or no deal. Right, so they they have to either say yes or no to a specific offer, and in every one of the cases, like no matter how ridiculous the product may seem, when you pitch it as an investing thesis, like somebody took the first fidget spinner, a prototype of it, to an actual human being and tried to get them to use it. And I, my guess is, a lot of these products, um, they can't be understood in theory. Like showing you a diagram of a fidget spinner accomplishes nothing. You had to actually build the initial thing and put it in somebody's hand. So we talk about minimum viable product, it's still a product. It has to be something that the customer can interact with, touch, taste, uh, whatever they have to do in order to purchase it. Now, the specific form of that is going to be really different for a consumer product, for an app, for a piece of industrial equipment, right? Like something that can be bought on Amazon, the minimum viable product can be the Amazon listing, but something that has to be bought in a showroom, you might have to go build a showroom, you know, to demonstrate what it is. Some products are bought on the basis of a specification document, so you just have to make the document. Other products are are bought when the person physically tries it themselves. And so, you know, you have to really understand who your customer is, what they really value, uh, and then you can, you know, plot strategy from there. But I could tell you story after story after story where very, very smart people who really had a deep industry knowledge and should have understood the customer as well as one humanly can, when they go to build a new product concept, they wind up dragging along assumptions about what the customer wants that are just wrong. There's, they're not idiotic. They're just not correct. I was working with a team that was selling uh, electrical equipment to data centers. Okay, so they make this piece of equipment that is sold into giant data centers. You know, because of the cloud computing boom, there's massive data center construction going on right now. And they had this idea to build a more efficient piece of equipment that you use high science, amazing research and development breakthrough to you know get the electricity in and out of data center in a more efficient way. Uh, and there's this massive piece of equipment. They go start selling data centers. Now, the plan when I met them was to spend three years and $35 million building this amazing piece of equipment with this great breakthrough and then launch it worldwide to all the data centers. It's like, and I'm like, okay, I don't know about data centers, but I know this plan very well. So how about... What for this product? What's the minimum viable product? Well, it turns out in this particular case, uh, data centers buy this piece of equipment on the basis of an RFP, a document. 
So you have to be willing when the customer says, how much will it cost to show them the specifications of what it would be. But this is not like Amazon Prime, two-day shipping. Like Data centers are not built on a whim, takes years. So between the time that you bid on the thing and the time you actually have to deliver it, like a lot of time passes. So you have plenty of time to build the thing that you promised that you were going to build. So it was a very terrifying for this team to actually go bid uh, with customers before they had actually physically made the thing in question. But their fears were there was no, was no problem because the first time they bid for it, uh, the customer said, like, this is a joke. Obviously, I will not be buying your thing. And they're like, but why not? It's so efficient. It has all these great properties. And they're like, yeah, but do you see how big it is? And they're like, who cares about that? They're like, <laughs> data centers make money by leasing out the physical space of the data center. And if my whole data center is taken up with your gi- ginormous piece of equipment, I don't make any money. And I don't really care how efficient it is. Plus, in a lot of cases, the person who builds the data center is a different PL and different business model than the person that operates it. Well, the person who builds it has to buy this equipment, but the amazing energy savings of its efficiency are captured by the person who operates it, who doesn't have to pay for it. So that person making the purchase doubly didn't care. It's like, not only is this like the wrong trade-off, I would never trade space for efficiency. I also don't care about efficiency at all. So thanks for coming in. (laughs) That's a minimum viable product, right? That's like, wow. In retrospect, now that I've told you the answer, everyone in this room thinks that's obvious. I wouldn't have made that mistake. because So everyone, I mean, how could, right? Everything is obvious once you know the answer. But in real life, we make assumptions and we have to test them. And the assumptions are difficult to see because they're invisible, right? That's and, exactly right. And another question I have in, in regards to that is, uh, so people, obviously, when they read your book or start using it, they think they're using it, uh, and, yeah. uh, and, but they might not be using it. So what do people usually misunderstand? And the reason I'm asking is because I have several organizations that try to get them to, you know, you need to do A-B testing, you I need know. to do, get the MVP up, you need to understand. They say, yeah, I read the book, I know how to do that. But yeah. then you come up later on, they misunderstand <laughs> stuff. So what do people usually misunderstand with your former sort of model and the new model? What do you think people will misunderstand? Yeah, we call it lean washing. Oh, lean uh, washing. Lean washing, right? Take the same old crappy plan, but you sprinkle some lean jargon on it Ooh. and like, ta-da. And in, in the early days of the movement, I used to get so many phone calls from VCs that were like, will you please stop telling people to take their same crappy venture pitch? And be like, it's lean now. So like, now you should invest in it. And you're like, this is the same dumb pitch you did before. When corporations get all excited about this, like there's always a phase when like all the middle managers decide that if they like throw MVP on their plan, it'll be more likely to be approved. So they don't actually change anything they just change the terminology. So that, that, that is very common. The most common misconception, I think, is that A-B testing or some kind of like experimental development process uh, is an abdication of vision. And I know uh, I made this mistake early on in my career. Like When I first discovered A-B testing as a tool of product development, and just so you guys understand how quickly the world has changed around this, when I first wanted, the first time I wanted to do A-B testing uh, in a software, an online software product was 2004 or five. that timeline, I think. And it was considered so weird to do A-B testing in software that I had to write my own A-B testing library. Like, not, there was no, like, Service where you go like subscribe and like drop in a quick little thing, but like there wasn't even like an open source library for like doing statistical significance tests on a like it was not considered a thing that you do. It was considered really weird, and so like the idea that we're gonna do scientific decision making was like such an amazing breakthrough. We're like this is awesome, and of course then we're like we just A/B test 
everything. And then like, whatever makes the numbers go up and to the right, that's what we do. And then we don't have to have vision, we don't have to think at all, we just turn our whole business into a, tr- into a crank, you turn the crank, whatever the spreadsheet says, you do the next thing. And like, you do that and like, 10 minutes later you will be selling pornography. Like before you know it, you'll be astonished how quickly you are like selling, uh, you know, astrology hotlines and all kinds of scams, right? Because you're like, I just want the numbers to go up and to the right by so whatever you, means you need necessary. To keep the so you got like, it. Was a very important lesson for me. Like you got to have a vision, and you got to say, no, no, no. I'm not just trying to make the numbers go up and to the right, like by whatever means necessary, because like cancer has amazing hypergrowth properties, and so do like Ponzi schemes. Like, well, that would be a great way to grow quickly, right? Like if all you care about is growth, then you forget uh, why you got into it in the first place. So it's important to balance that kind of experimental thinking with the the purpose of it is simply is to discover which elements of the vision are correct or false. If you have no vision, then you can't pivot by definition. Uh, so that's probably the most common misconception. That's, that's really interesting to know. And I think in, in your book and in your methodology, where does uh, people come in and values? And I mean, you're talking about right now vision, but coming into a large company organization, you, yeah. now you need to trust uh, entrepreneurs or other people to carry your vision or part of their own vision. Where do yeah. the values and what about the people who don't want to change? I mean, where do the people come in? So I, I have a little heuristic that I use to, to remind myself what causes what in organizations. It's a very simple pyramid diagram, has four steps. Accountability, mm. culture, sorry, accountability, process, culture, people, in that order. So accountability is the foundation of management. When people think about doing a transformation, changing my company, the first thing they always think about, and this is exactly backwards, is I don't have the right people. I've got to trade out these boring and uncreative people for some new, fancy, creative ones. So I'm going to go buy some fancy startup from the outside. Or I'm just going to fire a bunch of people. Put them um, in the same system. And- yeah, right, I'm going to hire. I, I, was, I was once talking to a corporate development executive at a big, uh, big public company, and he had acquired a startup created by a friend of mine. And so I was doing a clean startup workshop as a favor to the friend and the new like joint task force of the friend plus public company that they're going to do operate this new business. And the corp dev guy said to me, you know, one of the reasons we buy all these startups is that we want their cultural DNA to infect the parent company so we become more innovative. But he's like, and you would think sometimes just by random chance, you know, sometimes we'd infect them, sometimes they infect us, but every time like we we're like the Borg, we turn them into us. Not the other way around. So they don't infect us with their creativity. We infect them pretty quickly with our monotony and bureaucracy. And he's like, why do you think that is? I was like, you're asking me? Your job is to buy startups and you don't know why you kill them every time you <laughs> acquire them? Like, Isn't that an important part of your job description? And you know, have you not thought about this before? But like, if you look at how most companies are organized... Wait, so you basically told him that he's an idiot? Yeah. Well, I thought he was telling me that. Like, I was like, you, let me just reflect back your question to me. You don't know what it is that you do for a living. And you're asking me? Like, you got way bigger problems than I can help, right? But if you look at how most organizations are designed today, uh, the people in Corp Dev are not responsible for the eventual outcome. That's an HR and product development problem. So accountability, process, culture, people in that order. If we really want to get our people to think in a more creative way, we have to embed them within a more innovative culture. That requires changing the systems of the corporation, the incentives that they live in every day, uh, in order to allow that more dynamic way of working to flourish. And when I talk to senior executives who want their company to be more innovative, I always give them the same bad news, which is, by the way, did you know that right now, 
You pay hundreds or maybe even thousands of people, middle managers who work in your company, they're paid to make sure that no innovation happens in your company. It's their job. And if they allowed someone to do innovation by accident, you would fire them. And most CEOs are really offended at that suggestion, but it's actually just a literal description of what they actually do. And it's not that they're doing something bad. If you study the 20th century theories of management upon which almost every organization today is founded, they're all about uh, eradicating, eradicating variation and enforcing standardization. And on the factory floor, that made a certain amount of sense, but we have taken that idea to really, I think, ridiculous extremes, so much so that... We've generalized from the idea that because mass production required extreme Six Sigma level right, consistency mm. of one product to the next, that that also implies that people should be operating within those same narrow parameters themselves. So much so that we then send a message to most employees that you need to leave your creativity at home. Like this is the workplace is a place where you take off every distinguishing characteristic of yourself and everything that makes you distinctively human. Leave that at home and come in and pretend to be a corporate drone. Pretty difficult to innovate in that environment. It's, it's totally impossible. And then and then see say like, why do I have such uncreative people who work for me? They seem so dynamic when I hired them. <laughs> they keep tricking me. So the accountability is the number one thing. And what are people accountable for? So. In the, the best way to think about a modern company now is as a portfolio of different kinds of work where, just as you were saying, the high-risk, high-reward, high-uncertainty kind of work has to coexist with the low-risk, low-uncertainty, frankly, low-reward type of work. Low-reward doesn't mean bad. right? In financial portfolio theory, like having stocks and bonds and municipal funds and you know private equity and ha- like it's important to have a diversity yeah, of kinds that you if you're seeking alpha you have to have mm-hmm. a variety of kinds of beta so there's nothing wrong with having a conservative instrument in your portfolio what's wrong is to say i'm going to have a portfolio that is made up 100% of the most conservative asset class you can never get an optimal return if you're so conservative yet if you look at the work portfolio of most managers it's all the equivalent of municipal bonds. Um, but they have to pretend that they're doing something dynamic and innovative or whatever. So they just take the same old boring thing, jazz it up with some you know, some bogus hockey stick-shaped charts and, uh, and call it a day. A lot easier than doing actual innovation. What I really love that I've heard you say this before, when it comes to innovation, it's not everybody's job. That no. you have to find someone to say... To be in charge of it, Yeah, sure. this is your job now or your department or whatever. You're Can- innovating stuff. Can you imagine if we accepted that answer for other functions? You were like, we don't need a chief marketing officer. Everyone's in charge of marketing. It'll be fine. We don't really need a chief financial officer. That seems redundant. We'll just say that everyone's in charge of finance, and it'll be fine. Or, you know, I have a good idea. Let's open a finance lab. Far away from corporate headquarters, we'll create like a cool space with beanbag chairs and uh, some accounting spreadsheets and I don't know, whatever the accountant's like. The finance people will hang out over there and do their finance thing. And now we've like delegated the problem of finance to those guys. And now we can just go on, you know, about the business of running our corporation. Like, that's ridiculous. We all know that that wouldn't work. And like, we all know why it wouldn't work. Well, hold on. If you don't have a, de- a dedicated function to finance, how can someone? How can you have uh, the right career ladder for people who are finance professionals? But hold on. If I don't have a CFO, who's go? Who's going to be uh, embedding financial type thinking into all of the processes and procedures of the corporation? And who's responsible for making sure that financial education and literacy is at an appropriate level in my management class? Right. And the same story. Like, why do we have a marketing function with a G 
chief marketing. Well, we got to have marketing standards that are. I mean, like this is like so elementary. We've been working with this system for roughly a hundred years. We consider it totally obvious, and yet for some reason, there is no function that has responsibility for entrepreneurship. So all the same problems that we would have if we had no finance function happen. Because we have no entrepreneurship function. Like how, if you're an entrepreneur in a corporate setting, how can you have any kind of career path? Your business card doesn't say entrepreneur. It says product manager or something on it. And so like, you're being held accountable to the HR performance review matrix for the wrong job. So that's super frustrating. But also, our various gatekeeper functions, HR, IT, finance, legal, compliance, supply chain, their procedures are all designed to make entrepreneurs' lives difficult. Because they had to negotiate with each other, but there's no entrepreneurship function that they had to negotiate with. So too bad for you, you know, sucker. <laughs> and then who's in charge of making sure that we have broad literacy across the corporation for the idea that anyone could, in fact, become an entrepreneur and when to be an entrepreneur, how to use entrepreneurial thinking? Like, it's nobody's job, so it doesn't get done. And then we're like, gosh, but why is our organization so uncreative? It doesn't do any entrepreneur. Like, if I said, why is my, if I was like, oh, my company has terrible marketing, well, first thing you'd be like, well, who's in charge of marketing? Mm-hmm. If you're always like, nobody's in charge of marketing, you'd be like, well, maybe <laughs> we know why your organization has terrible marketing. Like, it's so obvious, we can't even, it's a joke to talk about. And yet for innovation, we still like we still like we treat it as some kind of mysterious. Like, I, why is this thing that no one's in charge of not getting done? Huh? Yeah, I think a couple of years ago, I saw you online on the workshop we had, and I, I, I think I might have misinterpreted this. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said we also need to protect the organization from mm-hmm. the entrepreneurs. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So then, when people think about creating like an innovation lab or something, the first thing they think about is how do I create air cover for my entrepreneurs, right? So make sure that like. Everyone knows that middle managers are like ninja assassins. Okay? They will find you and kill you. I think uh, you send a job description. Yeah, they, sure. I mean, if you were not good at that, you would not make it as a middle manager in most organizations <laughs> because every freaking day of your life, like thousands of people like come into work that day and be like, "I got a good idea. Let's like no. give our product away <laughs> for free for no reason." Uh, because what? Because most people's ideas are terrible, right? It's like it's okay. Like some like I have an idea. Let, let's like do something illegal and you know not and try to get away with it. And, like if your job is the compliance officer, like your job is to seek out those. It's like you got to be seek and destroy. If somebody is thinking about like you know doing something illegal or bad or wrong or you know whatever, you got to make sure it doesn't happen. So you you cultivate this like cadre of assassins, and then you're like, oh, but I want to have this one team over here, and they're not going to have any rules, so they can do whatever they want. And just don't just chill out. Don't worry about it. And they're like, okay, but couldn't that potentially create massive unlimited liability for the corporation? And you're like, don't worry about it. Like, but isn't like my future, my what I call the, my career equity, right? My perception of my future advancement prospects in this company isn't it directly tied to my making sure that that kind of thing never ever ever happens? Yeah. So like you're telling me that like my children's ability to eat and like the pro- like a future progeny of the line of my house depends uh, essentially upon making sure that this thing never happens. Uh-huh. And you'd like me to chill out about it. Why? Because why like for no reason. Like yes boss, I'll get right on that. Boom. Right? Like let me say like you turn your head a second ago it's like I will kill this thing. Like this thing is a threat to me and all that I hold dear. So people talk about that like oh well, we got to protect the startup from the assassins, but it's like well actually that's backwards. 
if the assassins are afraid of this thing, and if they have every rational reason to be afraid, you cannot protect them. They're too powerful. The assassins are too good. They're, they're like all ace snipers. <laughs> they just easily kill it. So we have to create a way to create a liability-contained box where we can run experiments out in the open. They're not a secret. And where we can help middle managers understand how they're supposed to relate to that. And, and there's no like quick summary for how you do that. People are like, well, how do you do it? It's like, well, it took me 400 pages to try to answer that question because the details really matter. This is not like, this book is not like a manifesto that's like, rah, rah, let's go innovate whatever things, like put up posters. Like I tried to be very specific about, but at the level of theory as well as the level of practice, how do you do this across each of those functions? But when we get those details right, we actually can create a way for middle managers to engage constructively and not just be the assassins of progress. I have about a billion questions, but we only got a few more minutes, so we will open up for questions. Um, hands up so I can see you. Right. Go ahead. So my name is Martin. Uh, this is my second podcast I listened to to, um, to you. The first was uh, thought, Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders at Stanford. Oh my goodness, 100 years ago, yeah. Yeah, and I, I listened to it three times. And I went <laughs> to buy this book, The Four Steps of the Epiphany. Uh, sure. Distributing it to friends, no one read it. Uh, anyway, I've had we will have to repeat too. the question because no, the question we can't hear is, you in the podcast. So, so since then, I mean, if you would pick one idea that's changed. I mean, now I recognize most of these things since I've, I've listened to them. I mean, what's what's the one thing that, that's... So what is the I one thing that has changed from your previous books? That's your question, right? Well, or your previous podcast. Or all, yes. From <laughs> yeah. all the previous work that you've done, what has changed? <laughs> well, because I'm so good at predicting the future, I was able to uh, know exactly what we were going to need in 2018, way back when I started talking about this in 2008. And so obviously nothing's changed. I just got everything right, and it's been terrific. Uh, and <laughs> my, what would you expect? I mean, it's so ridiculous that we act like that's supposed to be what authors are supposed to do. And like one of my pet peeves about business books is that you read them, and they're all kind of like positioning themselves as the last business book that needs to be written. So like if you just do my one thing, like you will achieve permanent business nirvana, and that, that will be the end of it. And it's always like, as a business publisher, like every author is like, call your publisher up, be like, hang it up. You don't need any, You don't have to publish any more books now. You got mine. You're completely done. So yeah, I, I mean, I have learned an incredible amount uh, in this time period. And so like, if you go all the way back to the earliest days of how I would talk about this, so we used to talk about lean startup as the um, integration of two prior theories. Uh, one called customer development that you referenced in your question, uh, Steve Blank's theory of uh, an iterative style of marketing with, uh, at the time, like my contribution was was agile software development, an uh, iterative style of, of engineering product development. And um, we used to conceive of it as two independent functions of the company, each of which doing this iterative thing with periodic checkpoints. So if you look at that, it's very much like traditional siloed corporate structure with a slightly more communicative uh, series of stage gate milestones between them. Uh, but the iteration is still happening fundamentally in a functionally segregated way because that, that was like the best you could do when the four steps of the epiphany were written. So like, I mean, it's very logical that, that that's how Steve and I were thinking about this you know, 10 years ago or longer. Um, but by modern standards, that's a very clunky theory 
first of all, it's way overly reliant on software and enterprise software specific concepts, which wouldn't have helped me not at all with like industrial manufacturing. But it also really concedes far too much to the kind of classic siloed uh, functional warfare style of, of organizational design where you still basically conceive of work product as passing from function to function in a stage gateway. And I just think we have... I, I'm not embarrassed that we once thought that was the state of the art, but we have long since superseded that framing. Now we can really conceive of an organization-wide commitment to iteration and experimentation, such that the entire company is built to learn uh, in this like a core part of its DNA. And I think that would have been too hard for us to see when we first started this journey, that that would be eventually the destination. Great. Plus, people would have thought we were really crazy then. <laughs> Ready? I try to um, also put in the practice your, your skills a lot uh, in Thank my you. company, Mark from SAP Innovation Lab. Do you have some three main signals, early stage signals, which think that the lean startup culture is reached the corporate uh, culture as a critical mass of the people already have adopted to that? It's an early signal. I can see that my, my mission is accomplished. Do I see some signals? So early signals, yeah, I'm trying to shorten down the question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so early signals to be seen, yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you read the book, and uh, let me see if I can find it in the... When you read the book. What I mean is when you read the book, uh, let's see if I have find it in the uh, in the Swedish edition, which I'm just seeing uh, for the first Wait, time. Wait, you're going to read a Swedish version out loud? No. Wow. Please do. No, I certainly, I, I, not only would I, would I embarrass Sorry. myself, but I would probably... <laughs> cause the building to be set on fire. I was just going to try to say what page it's on. So we can. Here we go. So starting on page 287. Okay, so spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to the question. You have to get all the way to page 287 and page 288. I actually tried to answer this question in extreme detail with this crazy eye chart um, diagram. And the reason I try to do it in so much detail is that to answer your question about what are the leading indicators that this transformation is working, you have to think simultaneously at three different scales of the company and four different time horizons of leading indicators. So it's a three by four matrix. The three scales are first the individual team level. I really believe that, you know, that old entrepreneurial mantra of think big, start small, scale fast. So if you're going to do a big, gigantic corporate transformation across hundreds of thousands of people, you need to start with one team, two team, a handful of individual teams that you find a way to pilot this way of working and see if it works in your corporate setting. Uh, the next kind of scale up is then a portfolio of those teams. So as you start to get more progress, you can start to say, okay, what if we took a whole division and changed the way it did, for example, its new product development budget allocation to work in this new way? And then the highest scale, of course, is the enterprise-wide level. And then within each of those scales, we can think about what are the most early leading indicators that have to do with just did we do like a training you know, for the team? Do we... Do we do anything at all to move in this direction. Uh, the next stage out, kind of timeline out, is um, did our employees change their behavior in some way that we can quantify or measure? So that's like, you know, think about that industrial equipment example I gave you. Like on the first question is just did we do the workshop or not? Is the first leading indicator. Believe me, a surprise number of companies who are very dedicated to doing lean startup have never actually trained anybody in anything. So it's like, don't measure the business outcome the only thing the trailing indicator if you haven't bothered to do the leading indicator. So, did we do anything? Then, like, 
employees now are working with a different cycle time, right? We were able to move cycle time from five years to six months. So we look for quantitative indicators that employees have changed their behavior. Then and only then does it make sense to ask if we're seeing a customer satisfaction benefit. So our you know, our internal or external customers seeing some kind of a difference. And then and only then does it make sense to look at business outcomes. And the culture of modern business is to skip steps and to just go to business outcomes. So it's like the CEO said, we're going to do lean startup. And then we'll like, people will be like, well, did the, how, how did their earnings do the next quarter? And you're like, the, today's quarter, the results of today's quarter is based on, on investments and decisions we made like five or 10 years ago. So nothing we did yesterday affects today's quarter like that in any kind of fundamental way, right? So we have to be able to like think time horizon wise. And anyway, you can fill out the other rows of the matrix accordingly. And anyway, I tried to be specific about the kinds of metrics we should look at each of those 12 situations. And then since we start in one corner of that matrix with a single team, you know, a small number of teams doing a small number of things, then over time we can spread out in both axes as we get bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of the number of people involved and as our experiments have longer and longer and longer to demonstrate success. All right, so one quick question. Uh, hi, Eric, I'm Mahesh. I'm a co-founder of Epicenter. Big fan of your work. Thank you, thank you. I have a couple of questions. One is on the people side. Please so uh, stick to one question. We okay. don't have time, yeah. <laughs> uh, keep, it, keep it easy then. So if you have a range of bets happening at the same time, yeah. and you look at the numbers or the impact they have, and they're very small compared to the core business of the large yeah. organization, is there a smaller way to visualize the future. Yes. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Thank you for that. Is there a smarter way to visualize the future, Eric? Yeah. So, so I love my favorite part of the question is he said, uh, if we're doing these kind of experimentation, a portfolio of new bets, if the results are small compared to the core, then and it's like there's no if. <laughs> we know by definition that the early stages of any of these experiments is going to be small compared to the core. In fact, I was just in a Silicon Valley tech company that has hundreds of millions of users of its product. And I was talking to one of their internal innovation teams that had launched a subsidiary product, you know, on a, whatever, like taking them into a new market. And, you know, they've been going for three months and they had, I think, already had two million customers. And I was like, guys, this is great. Two million customers already? They're like, you're the only person that said that to us. <laughs> Everyone else who works here is like, two million users? Give me a break. It's not going to move the needle on our hundreds of millions of users. And I'm like, well, I happen to remember when this whole company didn't have two million users and I and was only three months old. And let me tell you, the founders would have been really happy to have already gotten two million users. Right? And you see that all the time. Uh, whatever the revenue is, the early things, too small, too small, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Um, and it's funny, like the mainstream divisions of the company will generally want to engage in what I call taxation without representation, which is like, it's too small to matter, so I don't want to fund it, but I also want to control what it does and set rules about whether it's allowed. So it's like, well, hold on, if I thought it was too small to matter, then why should, like, what do you care? If it's too small to matter, they should be able to do whatever they want. It's like, well, but it might turn out to be really big. Like, can't you wait until then to start imposing rules on it? And of course, the answer is no, because middle managers are ninja assassins. Like, <laughs> this thing might, you know, something like might destroy my house and kill my children. Like, I'm not going to chill out and wait to see if it falls on my house and destroys my house. Like, I'm going to prevent it from happening. So, yeah, we have to develop a mathematical 
system for evaluating early progress that can be denominated in net present value terms and where the numbers are large enough that we can actually negotiate with finance to show objective progress in the early days. We call the system innovation accounting in lean startup terms. Uh, my friends in finance are always like, please add the disclaimer, not innovative accounting, which is the thing you go to prison for. So <laughs> innovation accounting, to, to be careful. And obviously we're not going to get into how to learn a whole new accounting system on a podcast in two minutes. Like, you know, just like cost accounting you didn't learn in two minutes on a podcast. Also with innovation accounting, you gotta, if you want to do this, you got to study the math. But I think, I think we have worked out kind of painstakingly over the last 10 years. We have worked out the mathematics of how you demonstrate that progress in a very rigorous way that can pass even the most like jaded financial audit, you know, kind of person's um, uh, uh, evaluation. So yeah, it has to be done properly. Great. Thank you so much for coming today, Eric. Oh, it's really um, my pleasure. Great yes. to have you, Eric. Yeah, Great. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to InvestPodden with Ranja and Ted. Please follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And feel free to contact us at ranja at investpodden.se. Have a great day, guys. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.